Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors in minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises, and most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows at the changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. All right. Hey there. Welcome to JS Party, where every week we are throwing a party about JavaScript. And today we're going to be talking about JavaScript tooling with three awesome panelists. Uh, I'm K-Ball. I'll be your MC. So I'm going to introduce the panelists. Each one of you say hi as I introduce you and what your favorite or most irreplaceable piece of JavaScript tooling is. So first off, we got Nick Nisi. Hello. Um, alert. Next, we've got Alex Sexton. Hi, everyone. Uh, probably Moment JS. And then Chris Hiller. Would it be cheating to say Mocha? I don't know if that's cheating. You made it, man. No, I didn't. <laughs> I think cheating is immutable, right? That's pretty irreplaceable. Uh, I'm going to go with NPM. I, I think that's somewhat irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. All right. So before we get started, I want to make you all feel comfortable with being ridiculous. So I'm going to I'm going to lay down a challenge to Jared. Jared started off JS Party with a rap at one point. So I prepared a little rap to intro you guys. And it's terrible. Just to throw that out there, it's terrible. But after this, no matter what you say, you know you're less ridiculous than I was. All right? So we're going to start. We got Nick Nisi's the man from Nebraska JS, organizing conferences for the rest of us. If your talk was denied, you could probably blame him, but he wins major cred because he talks about Vim. Next, Alex Sexton. He's a real star, proudly representing the JS party old guard, leading the way with Modernizer and jQuery, keeping it real down in Austin, the River City. My man Chris Hiller calls himself Bone Skull. His test framework keeps you from extraneous nulls. If you check his site, your opinion may worsen because he describes himself as a lizard person. Last but not least, the voice you've been hearing through today's episode, I'm the one who'll be steering, helping things along if they start to stall. Your MC, pleased to meet you. I go by K-Ball. Amazing. Word. All right, so let's kick off segment one talking about build tooling. So JavaScript in particular uh, used to be didn't have to worry about builds. And a lot of folks who have been in this world for a long time and they went to the back end, they're coming back to the front and they're like, what the heck is all this stuff? There's so many different things. So uh, we got a, a few different things that go into a modern build setup. You've got Babel, you've got you know, Webpack, Rollup, Parcel now, uh, all these different module bundlers. People have been using Gulp and Grunt for a long time. So what are these things? Uh, what are you using? And what do we? What is it that somebody needs to know about build tooling today with JavaScript? I don't think really anything. Should just all the work out of the box. No decisions to be made. So I think we just close up shop. Everybody wants to use the latest and greatest JavaScript, and uh, because you probably have to support IE eleven, you're not going to get that. 
So you need something like Babel um, to uh, compile or, or transpile your code. Um, and so that's part of the build tooling. Of course, people don't usually just use Babel. They will, um, you know, couple that with like a webpack or something and uh, concatenate a bunch of files together and minify them or, or split them out in, in certain ways. And um, But so it used to be people used like gulp and grunt to do this sort of thing. And and nowadays it's all webpack and, and parcel and, and, and that sort of thing. Anybody still using gulp and grunt? I know I actually have some projects that I use gulp with still. Yeah, I'm still using grunt. I'm not creating new projects with either of those tools, but there are several that exist currently. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it kind of felt like, well, there was grunt and then everybody's using grunt and then there was gulp and then nobody used grunt anymore and everybody used gulp. And then, and then webpack killed both of them. Um, but yeah, lots of people still use these things. It's just that grunt really kind of, it was, it really languished for quite a while. I remember it was at, you know, version 0 0.4 or, or what have you for a couple of years, um, before it got to 1.0. And so that can, that can really kind of <laughs> hurt a project's momentum. Maybe let's discuss a little bit about what, uh, what we used to do with grunt and gulp. Uh, and what and how that's been replaced with more modern tooling. So, like the the main benefits of a build is obviously to to build your files together to serve them uh, in a more efficient way to the browser. And so that includes things like uh, concatenating them and then minifying them so that you have the smallest bundle possible. But maybe let's build on that and talk about how it's changed for today's JavaScript environment. What if we even step further back? What did you guys do before, like Grunt, like before we had JavaScript task runners? I think I I was pretty on board with make files, which essentially just like run shell scripts eventually, uh, make files and then and like to to do dev watching stuff. You had to kind of, I guess there wasn't really there wasn't really wa watching things that I remember now now that I think about it, but like you would use like Python simple server or something like that to, to get a dev server. And then there was just no, there was no really transpilation. So we didn't need as much like runtime build. I think the first thing that introduced me to the concept of watching was uh, CSS preprocessors. So SAS. Yeah. I was in the Ruby world and I, I remember when the Rails asset pipeline came out and it would in dev mode, it would literally recompile every time you did a page load. So it would go through all of your assets and redo. It was slow as, as all get out. But uh, the idea that I could make changes and then just refresh the page and it was there was phenomenal. The essay pipeline was also interesting because it didn't have dependencies as part of the system or whatever. So like no matter what, it compiled and built everything in every folder of your like JavaScript app or whatever. So if you had anything you weren't using, it still would have to like run through all that stuff. I remember cleaning plenty of those up. When that actually gets into one of the key reasons behind the move from Gulp and Grunt to Webpack is that we now actually have true kind of dependency management and we can do analysis and, and actually build out these trees. Yeah. Uh, did any of you guys use Broccoli in, in between the uh, Grunt and webpack kind of uh days by any chance only embedded in ember cli and i i never got that deep into ember um i played around with it i mean i remember at that time one of the big pitches for broccoli was well gulp and grunt are actually task runners broccoli's 
specifically designed to be a build tool. And I think that's that's one of the big changes we've got going to you know, Webpack, Rollup, and Parcel is they are also, in a lot of ways, conceptually build tools. Yeah, I, I felt like Webpack didn't really catch up to Broccoli in terms of like dependencies and all that kind of stuff until much later um, in its, like after it was already popular. And these days it does just fine, but I thought Broccoli was really ahead of its time. I'm kind of sad that Jolis uh, kind of stopped working on it at, at the time and Ember eventually picked it back up, but it was fast and it, it has like caching, like down, like all the stuff that Happy Pack does for Webpack kind of was built into the nature of Broccoli. I think a lot of it, it got a lot of things right because it just stole a lot of stuff from Make. And I think that that was generally a good thing. I don't know. It was, it was a good project. It, very difficult to spell. Try to spell Broccoli right on the first try. Two L's, two C's. <laughs> well, uh, no one knows. Did it do well with non-JavaScript assets? Because one of my frustrations, at least with earlier versions of Webpack, I haven't tried this with four, but Webpack was really slow for for no apparent reason at compiling SAS. So like for mostly static projects, I would actually still use Gulp because for some reason the static the the SAS comp- compilation was two times faster than with Webpack. Yeah, I wonder if Webpack was using the JavaScript compiler versus the native one or something like that. I I don't know why it would be different except for caching. Uh, yeah, but Broccoli could it was somewhat agnostic to exactly what you were compiling so if there was a javascript program that could compile something and output kind of an asset from the thing that you know the input and the output it could cache that and then make it very fast because it worked like on a dependency tree level um, it could cache very like finite parts of the dependency tree and then when something changed it could only it would only recompile the things that were leaf nodes of that dependency um and because of that it is very fast and that's some what what uh have pack tries to implement on top of webpack these days um which is good uh if, if you need a speed up in your webpack and and if you work at a semi-large company and have a large app you probably could use one happy pack is a pretty big win the other big win that i think we got at stripe uh for dev mode stuff is like turn off minification in dev mode. Um, I think a lot of people have that on just because they're, you know, you just run everything in dev mode, uh, but you don't really need it. It's nice to test uh, eventually, um, maybe run your tests against the minified version, but th- it takes a really long time to minify JavaScript. So don't do it in dev mode. Speaking of speed, I mean, uh, it seemed to me that at least half of the reason that you know, uh, Gulp became popular and and, and uh, people were switching away from Grunt was the knock on Grunt was that it was very slow. You know, there was, uh, I think, a um, a, uh, a module that you could pull in that would make it somewhat faster, um, but with, you know, certain restrictions um, where it would only run the, the plugins that you are actually going to use instead of trying to load everything up. And it, that's, I think that's why it was slow. It took forever to load because it had to find and, and configure all these different plugins, even if you weren't going to run any of them. And of course the other part of that Holy war was, um, you know, convention and configuration, man, I, people got upset about that stuff. Grunt was much more pleasurable to write than, than gulp in my opinion. 
Oh wow! I was totally the opposite. I I liked gulp. See, I, I prefer <laughs> code over massive JSON files, and because the sort of piping nature of it, rather than having to figure out how was I going to write these things to this file and then read them and write them and read them, like the communication via the file system that Grunt had drove me bonkers. Yeah, I, I mean, I get it, but I always felt like I would stream one thing into the next thing, and it would never work. I would always have to like write some compatibility layer between every like the dream of just streaming seven things together was never ever ever the case um for me at least coming back to to today's build tools what about the sort of uh the trend towards every framework has its own cli now are those just wrappers around existing tools or are they providing unique value they are mostly wrappers around around other tools when it comes to build systems I think the value they provide provide it are like conventions in the specific frameworks that they're for. I personally think they're critical uh, for beginners. Yeah, they make it really easy to get up and running in a project. I'm not sure if they'll have long-term effects of abstracting away those underlying pieces. I don't think so, but uh, it is really nice being able to quickly get up and, and running with that. And also it makes sharing projects uh, much easier. Like if you have uh, to share a project for reasons like like support, like getting support or getting help on something, it's really easy to spin up a project with those tools. Yeah, I mean, they've become so popular that NPM has roughly built their use case into the CLI in, in 6 now. So there's NPM Create, uh, which is kind of a, a better dependency managed version of something like Create Re- React App or Ember CLI. Um, you can kind of create a a runner for for your framework that runs across npm create but you don't need to install some global dependency to do it and so they're kind of like fixing some of the rough edges around the npm side of things when it comes to just needing a global installer that has to be different versions for everything so you can npm create react app um and there's a space there now um and and then that can run all the same code, but in a in a nicer, non-global way. So I, I think they're becoming so popular that we're getting first-class support for it in our in our baseline tooling. Yeah, part of me is is um, wonders if your framework is so complex to need its own CLI. Uh, maybe it's too complex, but just gonna throw that out there. Well, complexity has to live somewhere if you're writing a complex uh, UI. So. Uh, you can choose to put that at the framework layer. You can choose to put that at the application layer. And I think there are good use cases for both, but I don't think the complexity goes away. Uh, if, you, if you don't need those things to use your framework, um, but then you have to write a, a 500,000 line code base, you probably end up having to write those tools or put those tools together yourself. And, and there are a lot of customizations that you can do to make it specifically better for your use cases. And that's nice, but I don't think... It shouldn't always be necessary to need to think about all those things. I really long, I think a lot of people's FUD is that they long for the days where you could just write JavaScript in a file and then load a page and it worked. Um, and and I understand that, especially from a beginner standpoint, that if you don't have to know about the history and release cycles and stages of TC39 specifications um, in order to write JavaScript, then that's probably better. Jared asked a, a pretty good question in the chat, which is, you know, is there going to be a Webpack killer or is Webpack going to stay the cutting edge? I know when Parcel first came out and it was saying, oh, zero config module bundling, it zoomed up to like 15,000 stars on GitHub in a, like a month. 
but I feel like with Webpack four, they've kind of mitigated that, and and it's I'm not hearing as much there. So what do you what do you all think? Is there going to be a Webpack killer, or is Webpack going to stay on the bleeding edge? I assume the Webpack killer already exists. Um, it might be Metro, which is the React uh, native bundler, which is does a lot of the same things, but way faster, but a lot fewer things. But it's it's pretty impressive. Uh, I think something like that will get adapted and, and picked up. I've always felt like Webpack was really low level, and it would make sense to me for there to be uh, tools built on top of it that would be much easier to use. But Angular CLI is built on Webpack, isn't it? They use Webpack. Vue CLI extends Webpack. Um, I know I've been using Nuxt.js, which is a Vue framework recently, and they... Uh, hide away the webpack config under their own config so they're setting up webpack for you and you can get access to it if you absolutely need to but there's no direct configuration so they're kind of building on top as well that's roughly what create react app does it'll allow you to more or less just pipe right into it um but if to do anything complex you have to eject and to in order to run your app you don't have to write anything at all if you don't want to so what is what is the definition of eject eject just means you can no longer easily uh pull the latest updates from create react app um it means you've changed something sufficiently enough uh it really specifically what it does is it stops using the dependencies to pull in configuration and it starts using your configuration but because of that you you can't necessarily update uh the library the, the builder anymore the, the create react app app um because it doesn't know what's in your configuration file and may no, no longer support that in a future version. It's, it's kind of the problem is that, that once you add a significant amount to your configuration, there's no way that they could anticipate breaking changes and things like that. So it's kind of a, a mechanism around that. So for simple apps, I absolutely encourage everyone to not eject uh, if you can um, and just track it. But any significant application that you're working on, like at work or something like that, probably going to need to eject eventually. This feels like an area that has been evolving very rapidly. Uh, I think a lot of that spurred by uh, the adoption of modules formally in JavaScript. Uh, and more recently, it seems like there's a little bit more convergence. It's feeling a little bit easier to manage. Do you all feel like this is going to continue to be a big innovation area? Or is it calming down and something where you know build tooling is going to become well solved and more or less disappear from our something we have to worry about build tooling never goes away i don't i don't think we've seen that anywhere in any other older ecosystem but it becomes for different things like we take minification and concatenation for granted these days whereas like back when i was first starting i had to run some java program in order to uh to minify my code some yahoo thing i down you know whatever and so i think it just changes like the transpilation becomes transparent or something like that and uh and a new you know only load what you need type stuff becomes the build du jour you know i wonder if it's going to you know move away from the cli maybe you're gonna have more servers or or something that that do this stuff for you yeah it, it would be cool to be in a world where uh you could have like a render farm for your javascript build stuff right you press a button and 9200 aws servers all calculate one equation and 
send them back the results. I, I mean, you, yeah, you, you deploy your JavaScript, and uh, it, uh, the server takes care of all that crap for you, and you don't have to think about it. That'd be cool. I mean, that's already what like CI servers do, but you still have to run it locally generally to develop it. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer here at Changelog. You know how important it is to stay in the know. And our weekly newsletter helps you and thousands of other developers do exactly that. It's the developer news that matters, nothing more and nothing less. Visit changelog.com and subscribe today. talking a little bit and realized we should really talk a little bit about the module wars and what has become of that where that's going uh what's what's happened there so uh who wants to lead off on talking about system js or require js or any of those fun topics well i'm not sure which appear does anybody know if if required js and that amd kind of showed up before um browserify I don't recall. I think that it spun out of CommonJS, which is what Browserify is. CommonJS was just a, it wasn't just the one module spec. It was a, a set of specifications, both the CommonJS modules that we know, the, the node style modules, um, and AMD were CommonJS specs. Uh, they were written around the same time, but RequireJS uh, was very similar to what Dojo had already done for years. Um, it would just worked without uh, eval. The difference there being that required JS or AMD is uh, asynchronous, and 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 common J or you know node require, and what Browserify used is synchronous. Right. The one the the common JS modules as we know them uh, are synchronous and require a build uh, in order to run them on the web. And the the case for AMD asynchronous module definitions um, was that. By default, the AMD modules did not need a a build tool, uh, and I I always my I have an article on my blog that everyone can go back and read from whatever year that was. Uh, I I think the default standards for things, and and neither ended up becoming a, a standard, um, or at least by any definition of standard that like browsers implementing it. But I I think you shouldn't be required to run a build tool in order to use javascript or whatever if that makes sense it was a nice feature before yeah, that was one of the really big benefits of of amd and why it was so nice because you didn't have to do anything it was just running the the vanilla javascript files during development and that that wasn't slow for local development uh so it was, it was really nice and easy to get started with that yeah but on the other hand like everyone would run a build tool against their amd anyways in order to ship it so i understand the other argument that's like well if we're all actually using uh, build tools maybe it doesn't matter i just didn't like that it locked you into like using node which was not like a guaranteed uh thing that anyone was even allowed to run at their work at this time like most people were not allowed to run node or couldn't run node at their jobs at the time when this was happening and so it was somewhat frustrating as a web developer that that we were kind of standardizing on node as the only build tool. Do you think that's been more or less decided at this point? Like, is anyone still using AMD or any of these things? Uh, plenty of libraries still um, use tools to output in AMD and UMD, as it's called. Uh, there was a 
a project called Best DJS with uh, Matthias and and what's his name, Lodash creator. Oh my goodness, one of my favorite people, John David uh, Dalton. J- yeah, JDD, John David Dalton. Uh, and they they put out something called UMD, which is the Universal Module Definition, and it would kind of try to detect the. Um, the place, the module system that you used and give you the right thing. So it was AMD and CommonJS and whatever old things, window. And so people use tools in order to just export their modules as UMD and so anyone can use them. I think that's fine. Uh, I also think people can do that to your modules. I think you either do UMD or nothing um, and, and either of those is fine. Let's move on to looking at things like prettier and linting tools and and flow and all of this it feels like javascript is becoming a lot more formalized as a language in a lot of ways what are y'all using and what do you recommend so as we discussed last week i'm using typescript which does kind of go in the opposite way and and force you into a build for everything uh so the complete opposite of what alex was saying uh as a good starting point but that's that's trading off to give me a bunch more helpful tooling during development i think and we, we discussed that last week. Yeah, I'm not against uh, having build tooling. I'm just against requiring it as part of the JavaScript standard. So TypeScript oh, sure. is not the JavaScript standard, but if you want to use TypeScript, then by all means add the build tool. I, I add the flow build tool to my chain, but I just don't want to force other people to do that. Yeah, so I, I used to use um, JSint and JSCS uh, in pretty much everything uh, until I saw that I could do the same stuff pretty much with just ESLint, and so I've been using it ever since. Uh, the I know the JSCS team, I, I believe, actually joined the ESLint project, and so kind of like ESLint absorbed everything JSCS was doing. And and so if you're not aware, JSCS was is. Uh, it's, I think that stands for JavaScript code style or something. Um, it was uh, not not a formatter, but it would, um, I, I believe, it would just uh, spout out errors and warnings if the code wasn't formatted um, a certain way. And they both became jQuery Foundation projects and then later JS Foundation projects when, whenever the jQuery Foundation moved over. And because of that, that was somewhat of a... Uh, a nice move to pick up both of them. J- JSCS was losing steam and losing contributors, and so the, the JS Foundation somewhat facilitated uh, kind of the joining of those projects. I kind of wish Prettier and ESLint were the same thing, though, at this point. I, I do as well. <laughs> Does anyone not use Prettier these days? I, I don't it's it be It was one of the most quickly picked up projects I've seen, mostly, I think, because, like, kind of by definition, if you have like valid javascript it just runs and then it's over so it can be somewhat hard to put against an old code base or get people to adopt on your team but like as far as running it it's it's like once you have it set up it just runs it's kind of nice in that like it's not deeply integrated it's hugely important and runs on everything and changes a lot of things but it doesn't have a lot of dependencies, if that makes sense. I have a couple of projects that don't have Prettier in just because they weren't part of the template that I started from and I didn't bother, but I, I should go back and put them in because it's essentially free and it removes a whole class of problems. I don't even agree with all of the, the stuff, like pretty adamantly think that some of the choices they make are wrong, but it's just worth, like I can still type them wrong <laughs> and Prettier will change them whenever I do a commit or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I don't really care for um, some of its choices, but I, I just I feel like the 
you know, the uh, benefits outweigh the disadvantages. And I'll, I'm using it on everything that I can from, you know, uh, I, we we just actually merged Prettier. Um, now we're using it in Mocha, and, it, and we did that, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. I'm curious how you all get, st- get set up with these tools. Like, when you're starting a new project, do you just kind of have global... ESLint RCs and Prettier RCs that you, you copy in, or I can never remember all of the rules between all of the different ones for, for setting up the, the file just the way I want it. I'm, I'm curious how you handle that. I manually copy files from the most recent pro- project that I worked on before. <laughs> At Stripe, we have a, a repo, and I think we might even have a published module, or maybe it's private. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we, we can just pull that in, and then you, just like you might pull in Airbnb's defaults for ESLint and Prettier, um, Stripe, just you can make your own pretty easily in the same way. You can even extend Airbnbs and just change a few things. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to do that, even if it's just a local GitHub thing. Yeah, I start from the Airbnb and then rip out the ones that drive me bonkers. Yeah, Mocha's using um, semi-standard. Um, and then it's... <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> Don't tell for us. Yeah, well... Yeah. Anyway, so it's using that, and then there's some some modifications. Um, we had some uh, actually. It was this is why I love ESLint is is because um, you know we have a situation where okay, you're a test runner, you want to be able to run you know async code, so you want to be able to do things in a set timeout in your in your own code base. But the problem is if a tool like um, uh, sign on or, or, or whatever comes along and it uh, wants to use its fake timers and and change things and um, so makes essentially makes async things synchronous well you don't want your um, you know you don't want that to affect the test framework and so in order to avoid that you have to actually avoid use of of global timers so you can't use set timeout you can't use the global uh, clear timeout. And so what you do is before you load that stuff, before you load the test, you, you take it, you essentially just create a reference to uh, the global set timeout. And so you pass that around and you can use that um, in Mocha and, and not have to worry about somebody else blowing it away. Uh, and so I, I was able to use ESLint to create some like fancy uh, uh, custom rules to disallow use of like this handful of globals, um, but also allow um, references to be made. And so, yeah, that was, that's cool. And I think that's part of the reason why they even, you know, why, why ESLint was made, um, just to be able to create custom rules like that. It's awesome. Mocha makes for a good transition. What sorts of testing tools are we using? I'm, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious um, about, especially like, what are people using for, for functional tests nowadays? I think as much as possible, we're trying not to write functional tests. There is like a set of, and, and I think also that gets bigger less because of everyone has different definitions of exactly the borders of, of functional testing. But when I talk about functional testing, I mean like you pretty much serve your application and have a browser, uh, like you use something like the click, you know, the, what, are, what are they called? Uh, there's a Java tool that runs against Chrome that... Yeah, well, yeah, like Selenium has some sub-dependency that I'm trying to think uh, of. But Chrome, it's Chrome Driver? Yeah, Chrome Driver. Well, Chrome Driver is an implementation of it, but yeah. WebDriver uh, Yeah, WebDriver, that's what it is. Uh, so WebDriver is an actual standardized API that, that all the browsers are supposed to implement and, and kind of do. Um, but uh, yeah, those are so slow and so hard to write in a way that doesn't make them super flaky that as much as possible 
doing like just and enzyme style like uh, render this in you know without a browser and and then click the things and check the handlers that's absolutely like 90% of stripes thoughts on on writing these tests we still want some end-to-end things right just like logging in works and uh, doing these different things work especially whenever there's servers involved um, in and you know you don't want mocked uh, endpoints and things like that but we try to keep those to a minimum uh, just because they're kind of a nightmare to maintain yeah I mean my my uh experience with with those types of basically when i say functional test i mean you're literally you're scripting a browser um and so you know my experience has been those types of tests are a difficult to write uh be difficult to not write in a flaky way and uh you know see a maintenance nightmare and in the end it's just expensive it's expensive as a business to invest in functional tests and you know, where he, at some point you have to decide, you know, is, is it is it worth it for what we're doing? I don't know. You know, that's that's a, that's a tough question. And you know, there's lots of there's tools. I'm I, I'm I'm curious about Cypress.io. I, I haven't used it, and and then what I understand, and it's an alternative to like the Selenium, the whole Selenium thing. I also think as developers, we tend to undervalue the value of QA teams and having people who actually go through and and use this thing as users, not even scripted browsers, you know, which is the epitome of. Ex- expensive but when i've worked with a good qa team like they catch things that i never would have thought of but on the other hand it it can be difficult to like so i I remember trying to hire people to write functional tests and that was a nightmare because anybody who could write these tests and write them well probably didn't want to be a qa engineer and wanted to actually write you know the, the code and so that was a really difficult position to hire for and maybe it, that's just the way things are yeah I, I think it is we as an industry put this idea that qa is less than engineering and i think honestly that that's a mistake right qa is is a fascinating problem set that is very different we should be playing it up as something that is very different from engineering but that for the right type of person is is an awesome career yeah i mean maybe it just needs to be framed differently but anyway i guess that's a that's a can of worms to some extent uh, one thing Stripe does very well is almost nothing releases to everyone all at once. Um, we, we kind of ramp anything up to, you know, 1% or 10 users first. And this is like testing in production or whatever. But to some extent, like if you're reasonably well tested, otherwise we write a ton of tests. We have coverage tools, all that kind of stuff that, that measure that, that stuff. But also we, we never assume things are going to work even from like a UX standpoint right out of the gate. And so every once in a while we'll like we'll release it to 5% of people and that's enough to get a few reports that's like well on my browser in IE uh this never this pop up never goes away or whatever um and that's at least more acceptable in my eyes than sending it out to everyone that way but never is fun to be the person whose pop up won't go away you mentioned uh, uh Justin Enzyme and so what I guess I'm curious about so that does not run in 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 a browser right Correct. Um, you're you're testing your you know your React app that is going to run in a browser, and but and so is is the idea there that it's just not necessary, or or it's it's nice to run it in a browser, but it's really just too expensive and all the problems we were just talking about. Yeah. So uh, it uses JS DOM. So it, it's 
it's using a browser by some definition of a browser that it, it just doesn't need interactions because you aren't like you're simulating clicks on DOM nodes you already have handles on rather than like clicking on like an X coordinate on the page. And that's kind of like the difference. You don't have X coordinates. You don't have a window, uh, you know, uh, that can actually be clicked. So things are faked. You get, you know, synthetic events um, instead of real events. Um, but I, I think for the most part, you can test that changes occur. So if someone clicks on this, uh, you want to make sure that this new content exists. Or if someone clicks on these three things, you want to make sure that this thing is now available for them to see. I think for the most part, uh, in in like logic, um, it, they they're like somewhere between unit tests and and functional tests. Like they're testing functionality of like clicking through the application, but they're not really clicking through the application. Uh, I just think it at, with our current tooling, maybe one day you know, functional testing will be fast and, and easy and, and stuff. Um, but there is no flakiness, essentially, like comparatively. I, there is obviously flakiness in any testing, um, depending on how you write it. But comparatively, the, the quality of tests that we get um, and their ability to, like, actually catch things, this is much better because people actually try to fix the tests if they break rather than just assume they're flaky and turn them off. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer at Changelog. We're so excited to have added the React podcast to our stellar lineup of shows. Every week, Michael Jackson has conversations with developers doing great things in the world of React. You'll hear from people like Andrew Clark, a developer on the React Core team at Facebook. I'm here on the podcast to talk about uh, the thing that I spend most of my time thinking and dreaming and fantasizing and worrying about, which is React, um, because that is what I do all day, every day. Um, even when I don't want to. James Long, who was frustrated with budgeting apps, so he decided to build his own called Actual with React and Electron. The UI design is just super overcomplicated in so many of the apps out there. Um, I mean, you look at some of the screenshots of these apps and there's like 50 numbers on the screen. The simplest question that you want to answer is, is what I just said, right? What is my finances right now? Should I buy this thing that's $200? Like, can I buy this PS4? Like, how much is that going to hurt me? Or Henry Zhu. Henry quit his job and is working on open source full time. I think uh, overall, I, I feel pretty good about it for sure. Um, yeah, there's definitely lots of unknowns and things I have to work out, whether it's just like personally or logistically, all that stuff. But I'm definitely excited for what's in store. Go to changelog.com slash react podcast or wherever you listen to our shows. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Let's circle into uh, another part of the testing cycle, which is continuous integration and how you run tests automatically and maybe even lay things out to staging and, and production environments. Uh, Alex, I know you said you're using a lot of CI tools or at least some CI tools uh, at Stripe. Do you want to lead us in with what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I also do a lot of open source uh, work or I used to do more, but plenty of CI involved in that uh, too. Uh, so you kind of have some different options. Uh, at, at Stripe, we use Jenkins, um, 
which is a pretty like self-service um, large CI thing that like a whole team needs to run, but is good for that. Uh, and then there are also hosted solutions like Travis CI or Circle CI, uh, different ones like that. The ones that you'll see uh, like the cute little green or red badges on the top of people's GitHub readmes. Um, I think if you have a smaller project, really bordering up into pretty large, uh, the hosted things can can do well for you. Um, but once you need kind of things behind your own VPN or behind, uh, you know, start spinning up staging servers in AWS as part of it, or need to scale to hundreds of people uh, building, then then you start needing to do something like uh, like run your own Jenkins cluster. Um, but I think CI in the open source world is pretty different than CI in the in the business world. And I, I think the business world does it pretty well. Um, and I think the, the needs are different. I don't think it's like a, a lack of understanding. Uh, so it, with open source, I feel like we run tests, um, maybe run tests against a few different versions of Node, uh, something like that. And then occasionally build assets will be done at the CI level. But actually in open source JavaScript, Usually it's just done at the deploy. Like whenever you ship a new version, you like pull a headless branch out and and commit a dist file with a force flag or whatever. I think that's more common than CI actually doing the building. Um, so it, it's interesting that like CI in the open source world is almost entirely testing in my experience. Um, in the business world, it's almost like it runs the tests, but that's like the first step. It also runs all the builds. It also uh, helps facilitate uh, QA or staging or any of those different things. So anytime I submit a PR uh, at Stripe, we'll, we'll spin up. Um, a, a server will be ready to kind of pick it up, build the whole thing. Um, it'll even uh, spin up AWS servers that can run that branch uh, and then the bot will come in with a link to uh, like a usable uh, instance of the application running against my pull request. There's a massive amount of stuff that you can do at the CI layer to like send off resources, uh, send requests, caching, make everything fast, split everything up. I think all of Stripe's, Stripe runs a monorepo, and I think all of our tests run, uh, you know, sub. 15 minutes, sub 10 minutes sometimes, depending on uh, the changes, which is long, I understand for most people, but like it's, you know, thousands and thousands of tests. You know, some of them are functional tests, some of, you know, JavaScript, Ruby, Go, all of that stuff is all running at once. So there are like, you know, probably, se- you know, several workers running uh, different parts. And we even like do things like, time all the tests and all the tens- tests should be idempotent uh, from each other, whatever. And then the workers can split up the certain tests into different boxes in order to balance the workers for the next run. And so you can kind of do all these sorts of things to to really like eke out every bit of performance and value out of them. And it, it's absolutely critical to our workflow. And you said that um, somewhere you said something about how it needs a whole team, meaning you need a whole team to maintain it and configure it? Or I mean, there's that. I don't think that's what they're doing all the time. They're building new integrations, making things faster, um, maybe uh, pulling in different tools. Um, we have a team at Stripe, I believe, called uh, Developer Productivity. And they work on everything from those bots that automatically spin up development environment 
servers for PRs. Um, and, and quickly, it's, it'll happen in like less than a few minutes um, f uh, after posting the, the PR, which is amazing. Like you no longer have to put like a bunch of screenshots and explanations. It'd be like, uh, here, go to the, the link that the bot automatically posted and use the actual thing that I made uh, and tell me if it works. Uh, that is so great. Yeah, I would have loved something like that, you know, like five years ago. The, the same team is going to be working on uh, like making sure Jira is up and running and making sure uh, our GitHub enterprise uh, is up and running and all of those are like working smoothly together. But I think a good chunk of their time is like making sure builds are like if a build goes down, if you think about like there are some, you know, a few hundred developers at Stripe now, if, if our build system goes down or becomes slow or has failures in the master branch to where you can't get out deploys, like it's a it's a multi hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of engineer time that you just lost and and momentum and and all sorts of things get pushed back so it's it's vitally important uh, at at stripe scale which isn't even uh, that big when it comes to like number of developers compared to like facebook or something like that uh, that this stuff is running like extremely smoothly it it's considered an incident like if if we go down that's an incident at stripe um of course, it never happens. That's an incident. But also, if the builds go down for longer than you know a, a minute or two at a time, that's also considered like an equal incident. So you mentioned the difference between you know CI and open source and CI in in business, and I kind of wonder some of that is driven by the fact that open source rarely has teams to dedicate to that. But Chris, how are you using CI for for Mocha? So we're running CI on, on Travis um, CI, and we're running it on um, App There. Um, you know, we found, you know, there's some, some weirdness that will happen on windows. And so we wanted to make sure that, um, we were getting coverage there. And so every, every PR runs through, um, like four versions of node on Travis. It runs, uh, browser tests. It runs linting. Um, I've actually, uh, I got a self-promotion. Uh, I got a recent blog post all about, uh, some changes that we made to our Travis config that are, are pretty neat. Um, if you're looking to like min max your, your Travis build or whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then app there, uh, runs just, just a couple versions of node. We, we don't like, um, we don't, uh, double up on like lint checks or whatever. We, we don't have app there launch its own set of browser tests. Cause that doesn't make sense. Um, but that's that's basically how we do it, and you know I I agree. Uh, like I haven't seen a whole lot of deployment happening um, from open source projects. Usually, you know the world I'm in, if deployment means you publish to npm, um, when that does happen in CI, it seems to happen with like semantic release. Uh, if you're familiar with that tool, um, but uh, yeah, so there is like an artifact that we so we we publish like an artifact to S3 uh, or, or maybe a, a handful of them, um, which are the bundles created by Karma. Um, so we run our browser tests with, with Karma. Um, and so uh, we basically take um, the like browserified, Karmafied test bundle and upload that to S3 if we need to debug it. Um, and haven't had to use that for a, quite a while, ever since we dropped um, support for IE 9 or IE 8. Um, so, uh, because that was really a nightmare to, to de debug. Um, you, 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 like, you, I would log into Sauce Labs because we run them through Sauce Labs. And um, 
you know, you could get into like IE8, but you couldn't really see a stack trace. You'd get like a line number, and so you couldn't see the code. And so I'd had to go back and actually look at the bundle and and match up the line number. And so that's what that was for. But yeah, I, I would say most, um, at least in in in, in uh, Node land, are not uh, deploying much of anything. All right, let's move forward to our next set of tooling. I want to make sure that we have time to cover IDEs because this is. Uh, there's been a lot of progress in the last couple of years, I think, uh, between GitHub's Atom and the, the new round of Microsoft VS Code. Like, there's a ton of innovation happening in the IDE space. So maybe let's start with uh, what IDE are you all using? Well, as you foreshadowed in the wrap at the beginning, uh, I'm just using Vim, uh, just Terminal Vim. Uh, but I do get a, a lot of the benefits uh, for my TypeScript code through TS Server and, and through various plugins. I think I have 65 plugins right now. So maybe I'm going a little overboard, but uh, I, I can do modern development in, in Vim. What plugin manager do you use for Vim? Vim plug. Interesting. More of a pathogen user myself. I, I was using that, but I, I like being able to just go and comment things out in my uh, VimRC and turn that off rather than having to, to manage like get submodules. Yeah, I, I always used, I, I use VS Code now uh, for what it's worth, but I still set up my vim as if i'm going to use it i still use it sometimes uh but yeah i always use spf 13 as a good starting point in case anyone uh needs one just like if you want to try vim uh it's going to be pretty difficult to use out of the box Um, that's just one of its features but if you like install spf 13 it'll install all the tools that we all install into our vim anyways maybe it it might you know pick a side on some holy war of of autocomplete um but it's a pretty good starting point if, if you want some, some plugins. Uh, I'm using VS Code now. Um, I, I switched uh, a couple months ago. I had been using, um, uh, well, first PyCharm and then um, WebStorm for, oh, I don't know, five years or something. And so, uh, yeah, I was I thought I'd try VS Code because I saw everybody who's like giving presentations is using VS Code. And there's got to be something to it, and people seem to rave about it, so I tried it, and I liked it. So um, there's still some parts of it that 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 bug me, but um, yeah, it it works well. It's quick. I use Vim Mode Plus uh, with overrides in VS Code, um, and I roughly have everything I really really cared about from my Vim uh, config, which is always the problem with Vim modes in different, uh, you know, in uh, TextMate or whatever back in the day is you couldn't customize it at all. Like you could do baseline Vim stuff, but everyone uses JJ or, um, you know, different uh, control P plugins, different things like that. And so I was able to get my VS code working to where all the things I naturally did, uh, you know, uh, colon WQ to save all that kind of stuff. Uh, but also like if you need to click around, you can click around too. It's, it's kind of in my opinion, best of both worlds at this moment. But I wasn't like an extreme power user of, of Vim. I was just regular good at it. VS Code feels fast until you start trying to do a bunch of Vim macros in it. And then you're like, oh, this is so slow. <laughs> Same with Vim, though. Well, yeah. I've started using VS Code explicitly for demos and for recording stuff because it is pretty. Um, and it makes it folks are used to seeing it but i'm still down in i i've been like trying to migrate to more of a full id for forever and i just always end up back in vim you know i'm very much a terminal guy i live in my terminal i've got uh, a tmux set up with vim 
you know, shortcuts and everything. So my terminal and my editor are basically the same thing. It's really hard to get out of. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the same boat. I'm actually using NeoVim in the terminal uh, and, and in Tmux. And I really like that setup. And But there, there are things that I'm, I'm really envious of in VS Code that uh, I, I just could never get in in Vim and Terminal Vim. Uh, some of the new things with like collaboration just look so cool. Uh, I've always had this this dream of being able to use Tmux for that, but in reality, nobody knows how to navigate my Vim but me, so it doesn't work like that. Uh, they also like allow you to to share dev environments through through VS Code, which is really really cool. And then the integrated debugging. Do you use uh, Vim or NeoVim? I use NeoVim. I'm just on old school Vim. I actually, I need to check out NeoVim. What's what's the benefit? Uh, I mean, I think it's rewritten in a more modern language. I can't remember even which one. Not everything is supported, but the things that are supported are faster and, and safer and, and stuff. But also, I think it's more externally scriptable. I think you can actually run Vim mode powered by NeoVim uh, in the background. I think that might be how I have it set up. Uh, so like certain things actually run against NeoVim, uh, like the the runtime, and then come back into VS Code. I think I had to provide my NeoVim location for some reason, at least. Yeah, I think I've read about that. That's really cool. Uh, NeoVim gives you, well, the initial benefit was that it had async job support. So your Syntastic or whatever could run without blocking the the loop in, in the editor and freezing the editor while it was doing that. Um, and it also had an integrated terminal, but Vim 8 has both of those now. So It also had better color support, and you didn't have to write Vim script. Yeah, yeah, it looks like you can write scripts in Lua. Yeah, I think it's Lua. Yeah, yeah. I've tried to keep my setup pretty portable between the two, but uh, it, the way that it currently is, after a couple hours of using regular Vim, I'll get a, a Stack Overflow error. I don't get that in NeoVim, so... I haven't tried Vim 8.1 or whatever the the latest just came out, but yeah, I, I just uh, aliased uh, Vim to NVim uh, at this point, so I think I'm fully Same. over to to NeoVim. But again, I'm I'm not a I don't commonly use it anymore. So I think it's good. Like if you don't commonly use it, just switch over now. That way, you don't accidentally lock yourself into something that doesn't work. All right, so we've probably lost all the JavaScript because <laughs> we're talking about vim for a while but uh, good to know that we're all on the same page here anything else or last things we want to touch on before we wrap up how about um yarn oh yarn uh i my opinion we use yarn at stripe yarn is one of those things that's going to work fine for you if you work against it Uh, enough people are using it to where it's good i think it motivates the npm m team to to speed some things up and i think it's roughly good to have the competition and or whatever but also, like, don't feel like you're missing out on something great, I think, especially like NPM6 has, has great features that Yarn doesn't have as well. Is it going to go the IOJS route where they diverge for a while and eventually make good and, and remerge? That doesn't seem to be how Facebook does things. I think Facebook will dig their heels in and build more things that are custom to just them, if history serves us right. But generally, they're pretty decent tools. I like Yarn because of, uh, just for what you said, because it helps push NPM forward. NPM had a lot of big changes after Yarn showed up, and I, I tend to just use NPM, uh, like if I'm starting a project, but I use whatever whatever um, file I see 
whatever lock file I see. Lock files were a massive improvement to the entire ecosystem. The shrink wrap was a nightmare in the past. And and I think a lot of like criticism of yarn was that like of course it's fast, it only does, you know, one eighth of what NPM does and doesn't ensure any of these uh, things. And and the feedback I think that was heard was like, well, most of the time, most people are only doing this one eighth of things. Um, and so it wasn't so much that like the code for Yarn was just brilliant compared to the code for NPM. I think there's a lot of like, just like folklore, but, but Yarn does a lot less than NPM does. Um, and, and I think it was motivating to the team to just like streamline the that like most common use case um and and i think they did have done a, a great job speed wise is, is great chris you want to chime in no i mean i i'm pretty much use use npm you know the the only thing i ran into uh with yarn was that it was ha- it had some issues um, you like had to pass a special flag or something to it, or else you could run into problems if you're trying to run it in, in two places at once. <laughs> um, yeah, mutex, um, yeah, 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 stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I, I don't really know what the the like the real value proposition is anymore. Um, given that, like, uh, you know, now npm has all this other stuff. Uh, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like anything that's necessarily going to bite you in the rear for choosing it. They have kind of versions of the same thing, like pulling in packages from local file system or uh, things like that, like work slightly different or the, or the way the lock files uh, store things uh, are slightly different. Like one is deterministic and one isn't, uh, or maybe that is no longer true, but uh, there, there are trade-offs um, speed for consistency or, or or various things like that but uh, i don't think they're large i think whatever you use now if you're happy with it uh use it if it's broken try the other one and if it works use that <laughs> keep doing that for the rest of your life it's they're completely interchangeable from a runtime standpoint uh like if you know one it's pretty easy to use the other just don't use bower just don't <laughs> use bower and that's a perfect place to end don't use bower all right so this has been JS Party talking about tooling. If you're listening to this on podcast, you should join us live every Thursday. Though the time keeps jumping around, it's usually 10 a.m. Pacific, except when we want to have Alex, and then it drops down to nine. That's it for this week's JS Party, and we'll catch you next week. All right, thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelog.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder, and you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.